You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. We were deployed eight feet apart in order to extend our line as far as possible. We were behind a rail fence with just enough distance from the road to lie down at full length and rest our rifles on a low rail where good aim could be taken. I suppose we were in position nearly an hour before the enemy's advance column appeared in our front. About 200 yards distant was another rail fence, a freshly fallowed field lying between us. We had strict orders not to fire until the enemy was in good rifle range. Their force outnumbered our own so greatly that while we were holding them back in our front, they had lapped around our right and left for some distance. When at given a signal, they made a desperate rush upon our line, though we popped our rifles as rapidly as possible, it seemed evident that we would soon be overwhelmed. When they were about 20 yards distant, I was shot in the left arm, about three inches below the elbow, the bullet passing between the two bones, then through the elbow joint and lodged in the muscle of the arm. I do not know whether it was the excitement or what, but I felt no more pain at the time than if a brush had hit me, but the blood trickling to my fingertips and the utter uselessness of or inability to move the arm made me realize that it was broken, and before the enemy reached the fence, I pulled myself into the road. At this moment, Cobb's Georgians came to our relief and enabled all who could to escape, for they halted the enemy at the fence from which we had, only a few minutes before, been firing at them. For fully ten minutes, the bullets were hissing near my ears, and as soon as the enemy crossed over, I held my shattered arm in my right and took refuge in an old cooper shop near the roadside, where a number of Federal soldiers were making good use of several barrels of fresh cider. I passed by them and seated myself on the back sill, feeling quite faint from the loss of blood. I was not there more than a minute when one of the number brought me a tin cup of the cider, addressing me as Johnny. He seemed very much interested in my condition and insisted on going with me to have my wound attended to. I was utterly amazed at this mark of kindness. Private Philip F. Brown, 12th Virginia Infantry, Parham's Brigade. Every regiment prepared, the men took an extra tug at their waist belts, and at the signal the entire command rose upon their feet, and giving a ringing cheer, rushed forward. The enemy was well prepared to receive us, and poured in our faces a terrible fire from behind the wall, the trees, and rocks on the mountain, and a stone house on the right of the 96th Pennsylvania, which was the right of the line. There was not a falter in our ranks, or a shot fired from them, and comrades were falling at every step. At last the stone wall was reached, the enemy's line broken, the stone house captured, and the enemy were en route flying up the mountainside. Then our lines, in perfect order, opened their fire, and in pursuit passed on up the steep mountain, loading and firing as they went. About halfway up the mountain above us, a wood ran diagonally down its side, into which reinforcements were pouring with the old rebel yell, 
but the line of blue kept struggling upward, firing and loading as rapidly as they could under such difficulties. Our fire here was very effective. Each bullet must either hit a tree, a rock, or a man, for they could not go over the mountain. The enemy, however, were firing over us, and our loss was very little. Major McGinnis of the 18th New York said to me, Colonel, my men are out of cartridges. I replied, Never mind, Major. Push on. We have got them on the run. Colonel Joseph J. Bartlett, Brigade Commander, 6th Corps. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 186 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With the last episode, we looked at some of the tough fighting that took place at the Battle of South Mountain on Sunday, September 14th, 1862. We saw how Reno's Ninth Corps had fought for possession of Fox's Gap and how Hooker's First Corps had conquered both the terrain and the rebels in order to turn the left of the Confederate line north of Turner's Gap. As night fell across South Mountain, bringing that bloody Sabbath day to a close, the Confederates technically still held vital Turner's Gap, but just barely. And in any case, their loss of Fox's Gap just to the south meant their right had been turned, and so there was little doubt that come Monday morning, the Federals would complete their victory here in this sector and completely rout whatever rebels might still be trying to hold on to Turner's Gap. That Sunday night, George McClellan telegraphed Washington, happily telling Henry Halleck about Reno and Hooker's success. But when Little Mac sent off that message to Halleck, he only reported on the action that had unfolded to his immediate front, where he had observed the fighting. As McClellan made clear in the note, he didn't yet know the results of William Franklin's efforts down at Crampton's Gap, six miles to the south. As you guys will recall, McClellan, in his plans for September 14th, expected much from William Franklin and the soldiers of Franklin's Sixth Corps. In fact, Franklin would play the key role in Little Mac's overall plan for cutting the Confederate army in two and beating the rebels in detail. While Ambrose Burnside and McClellan supervised the operations of the Federal right wing at Turner's Gap and held D.H. Hill and James Longstreet in place there, Franklin was to punch across South Mountain at Crampton's Gap, a half a dozen miles to the south, and effectively drive a wedge between the divided segments of Robert E. Lee's army. Once through Crampton's Gap and across the mountain, Franklin would be in Pleasant Valley, the key to the back door to Harper's Ferry. And so McClellan expected that Franklin, by moving aggressively, would not just drive a wedge between Lee's divided columns, but would also lift the siege of Harper's Ferry and relieve the federal garrison there. Exactly. At any rate, Franklin received his orders late on Saturday evening, and in them McClellan left little doubt about exactly what he expected from the 6th Corps on Sunday. After reading Little Mac's instructions, and before turning in for the night, Franklin sent a wire back to McClellan, saying, 
I have received your orders, understand them, and will do my best to carry them out. My command will commence its movement at 5.30 a.m. True to his word, Franklin had his troops on the road early on Sunday morning. But after a march of four miles toward South Mountain, Franklin called an hour-long halt to give some reinforcements from the Fourth Corps time to come up, even though McClellan had given him specific instructions not to wait for those men. During the delay, Franklin's soldiers could hear the faint, though ominous, sounds of battle drifting down from the northwest, where just then Cox's Ohioans were slugging it out with Garland's North Carolinians for control of Fox's Gap. Unfortunately for McClellan, Franklin's hour-long delay that morning was just a taste of things to come. When Franklin's march resumed, though, the approach of the Blue Columns must have been a sobering sight for the Confederates who had the job of defending the mountain passes in this sector. At Crampton's Gap, and a little more than a mile to the south, Brownsville Pass. While Franklin could count nearly 13,000 men in the two divisions of his 6th Corps, the rebel defenders here had only a handful of regiments, and making matters worse for them was the fact they didn't know which of the passes, Crampton's or Brownsville, the Yankees would attempt to force their way through. The highest-ranking Confederate officer in this sector, Brigadier General Paul Sims, placed three of his regiments at Brownsville Pass while putting Little Billy Mahone's brigade at Crampton's Gap. Since Mahone had fallen wounded at 2nd Manassas, his brigade was commanded here by Colonel William Parham. It totaled just 520 men in the 6th, 12th, 16th, and 41st Virginia regiments. The 41st was detached to guard a small pass nearby, but Sims told Parham he could call on the 10th Georgia, which was back in Pleasant Valley, if he needed it. Sims himself decided to remain at Brownsville Pass, since he was convinced that the Federals would try to punch through at that spot. When Parham's regiments reached Crampton's Gap, they joined a small force of rebel cavalry already there. Those horsemen, led by Colonel Thomas Munford, were part of Jeb Stuart's command, and they had been steadily forced back to this spot by the Federal advance the previous day. On Sunday, September 14th, neither Munford or Parham at Crampton's Gap, nor Sims at Brownsville Pass, needed to be reminded of the importance of preventing the Federals from forcing their way across South Mountain here. Should the Federals punch through here, they would not only hold the back door to Harper's Ferry, but Robert E. Lee's entire army would be in grave danger. Like D.H. Hill's men six miles to the north, the Confederates here had to hold on at all hazards. About noon on Sunday, the vanguard of Franklin's advance ran into Munford's Confederate horsemen outside Burkittsville, a small village just to the east of South Mountain. The Federal skirmishers drove the rebel horsemen back to the village and then ran into a stronger line of Confederates behind a stone wall at the foot of the mountain. This was not only Munford's cavalry, but also Parham's infantry. About 12.30, while his skirmishers were trading shots with the Confederates behind the stone wall at the foot of the mountain, Franklin established his headquarters in a house one mile east of Burkittsville and promptly sat down to enjoy a leisurely lunch. 
Even as the skirmish fire intensified, the rest of the Sixth Corps continued to come up, but rather than immediately feeding them into the fight, Franklin allowed the men a chance to rest and catch their breath. This despite the fact that he had just received an urgent note from McClellan reminding him of the critical need to press forward and seize Crampton's Gap with all possible speed. With the Sixth Corps' advance stalled, and while Franklin and most of his top officers enjoyed a post-lunch cigar at headquarters, the Confederate defenders used the time to full advantage. Sims and Munford both sent pleas to Lafayette McClaws for support, even while they worked to strengthen their positions. As you guys will recall, McClaws was leading part of the Confederate force besieging Harper's Ferry, and it was his command that would be in grave danger if the Yankees succeeded in punching through Crampton's Gap and getting into Pleasant Valley. Right. So in response to those pleas for help, McClaws ordered Howell Cobb's brigade of Georgians and North Carolinians to march to Brownsville in Pleasant Valley, where it would be in position to support either Sims or Munford. McClaws told Cobb to, quote, hold the gap even if he lost his last man doing it, end quote. The 10th Georgia had already been ordered up from Pleasant Valley, but until Cobb's brigade of 1,300 men arrived on the scene, there would only be about 1,100 Confederates to confront Franklin's entire 6th Corps. Semmes had perhaps 300 at Brownsville Pass, while Munford and Parham had about 800 at Crampton's Gap. Munford positioned his main line of battle along Mountain Church Road, which ran parallel to South Mountain at its eastern base, roughly a third of a mile west of Burkittsville. And by the way, Munford was the senior officer at Crampton's Gap, which was why he took charge of the defense there. But as was mentioned in that quote Tracy read at the top of the post, even as Munford supervised the placement of Parham's three regiments, the Confederate defensive line was so thin that in some places the rebel soldiers stood eight feet apart. While Franklin and his chief lieutenants were still relaxing and enjoying their cigars, yet another urgent message from Little Mac had arrived. But nevertheless, it wasn't until 3 p.m. that Franklin's lead division, commanded by Henry Slocum, began deploying for the attack. Slocum's three brigades formed one behind the other, like a massive battering ram that would smash its way through the thin Confederate defensive line at the base of the mountain. Incredibly, despite McClellan's clear orders to Franklin the night before, and his repeated urgings on Sunday, it wasn't until 4 p.m. on Sunday afternoon that the battle for Crampton's Gap finally started as Slocum's men began their advance against the stone wall. The regiments at the head of Slocum's attack advanced to within two or three hundred yards of the Confederate line before halting and taking shelter behind a rail fence. Federal casualties mounted rapidly as the fence provided little real protection, while Confederate casualties were far fewer since they benefited from the good cover provided by the stone wall. With casualties mounting and their cartridge boxes rapidly emptying, the lead Union regiments looked to the rear for support, but that support was slow in coming up. Finally, though, the whole of Slocum's division, excepting one regiment held in reserve, had entered the fight. For more than an hour, Slocum's brigade commanders, 
showing little finesse, relied solely on massed firepower, punctuated by occasional charges, to try to drive the stubborn rebels from their position. But despite the courageous efforts of the blue-clad soldiers, no headway was being made. Despite the numbers massed against it, the Confederate line was holding. With his infantry suffering heavily and making little progress, Slocum called on his artillery. But still, the rebel line at the foot of the mountain simply wasn't budging. It was twenty after five, and daylight was fading as Franklin, at his headquarters more than a mile to the rear, sent a grim message to McClellan, saying, quote, I report that I have been severely engaged with the enemy for the last hour. The force of the enemy is too great for us to take the pass tonight, I am afraid. End quote. But even as Franklin was sending that message, Slocum's brigade commanders had decided that only a united charge by the entire federal line would dislodge the stu- stubborn rebels. One of those brigade commanders was Colonel Joseph Bartlett, and Rich read that quote from Bartlett at the top of the episode, in which the colonel described how, at about 5.30, the Union soldiers, with bayonets fixed, let out a cheer and charged the Confederate position. James Toomer, a sergeant in the 16th Virginia Infantry, remembered the sobering sight of the entire Federal line now charging directly toward the thinly manned Confederate position. Quote, They came over the field grandly, the officers all in place and cheering the men onward, the men well aligned on the colors, with the stars and stripes floating above them. Toomer added that the Yankees roared like bulls and howled, quote, like devils let loose from the infernal regions. As the Union soldiers from Slocum's three brigades swept forward in an irresistible wave, the Confederate line at last broke, and Munford's and Parham's men after a heroic fight, now fled for safety up the wooded slopes to the rear. The collapse of the Confederate line along Mountain Church Road started a mad scramble up the steep eastern slope of South Mountain. But Munford's and Parham's retreating men weren't the only rebels with which the victorious Federals had to contend as they advanced up the mountain, because by that time Cobb's brigade of Georgians and North Carolinians was just arriving on the scene. When Munford's and Parham's men began their retreat, Cobb was just starting to deploy his men into line on the slopes of South Mountain, about halfway between the summit at Crampton's Gap and the just-broken Confederate position down along Mountain Church Road. It wasn't long before the still hard-charging Federals ran headlong into Cobb's partly formed line halfway up the mountainside. There the Federal advance came to a brief halt, but Cobb's half-formed line quickly broke, and the Yankees renewed their pursuit of the retreating rebels. With darkness quickly descending over the mountaintop, Hal Cobb at Crampton's Gap was desperately trying to rally what was left of his command. Some men, mainly from several Georgia regiments, did stop and form a makeshift line there, but most continued their retreat, running in panic down the western slope. As the panting and exhausted but triumphant Union soldiers continued their strong push up the mountainside, Cobb's makeshift defensive line melted away, and by a quarter to seven, the Federals of Franklin's Sixth Corps held sole possession of the summit and Crampton's Gap. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? 
Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavors, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. Federal casualties at Crampton's Gap were 113 killed in action, 418 wounded, and two missing, while Confederate losses neared 1,000 men. Of the total Confederate figure, though, more than 600 were prisoners who were captured by the victorious Federals. The battle for Crampton's Gap was an undeniable tactical victory for the Federals and a complete defeat for the Confederates. In his book, The Battle of South Mountain, John David Hoptak writes that, quote, As the Sixth Corps began settling into bivouac and its officers congratulated themselves on the mountaintop, all was panic and pandemonium among its Confederate adversaries. Generals Lafayette McClaws and Jeb Stewart learned of the Federal breakthrough at Crampton's Gap and immediately made their way from Harper's Ferry up Pleasant Valley toward the critical mountain pass. As they rode forward, they were met with a steady stream of retreating soldiers. Hoptak then describes how McClaws and Jeb Stewart, in the deepening darkness, went to work to patch together a last-ditch defensive line across the floor of Pleasant Valley, about one mile south of Crampton's Gap. Hoptak writes, quote, McClaws also anxiously awaited the arrival of Wilcox's brigade of R.H. Anderson's division, which he had summoned from Harper's Ferry immediately upon hearing of the Federal breakthrough. McClaws commented to Stewart that they were now trapped and sought the cavalryman's advice. Stewart suggested a counterattack to reclaim Crampton's Gap, but McClaws rejected the notion and decided instead to focus on strengthening his new line and preparing for any attack. 
But McClaws breathed a little easier as time passed Sunday night, and it became obvious the victorious Federals weren't going to immediately follow up their success at Crampton's Gap by pushing on into Pleasant Valley. But with the enemy garrison at Harper's Ferry still holding out, McClaws realized he was stuck in the valley, and he was certain the Yankees would become pouring out of Crampton's Gap at first light. And so McClaws withdrew two brigades, Kershaw's and Barksdale's, from the heights above Harper's Ferry, and together with Wilcox's brigade, those men formed alongside the remnants of Cobb's, Sem's, and Parham's commands along the new line in Pleasant Valley, and there they awaited what they believed would be the inevitable advance of Franklin's Sixth Corps on the morning of Monday, September 15th. Late on Sunday, September 14th, Robert E. Lee, at his headquarters in Boonesboro, met with D.H. Hill and James Longstreet. Because of his injured, bandaged hands, Lee hadn't ventured near any of the day's action, but instead had been forced to rely on the reports and decisions of his subordinates. And now what he heard that night from Hill and Longstreet wasn't encouraging. Hill explained that he and Longstreet had been unable to prevent the Federals from gaining secure positions to the north and south of Turner's Gap, and that although the Confederate forces still held the vital pass itself, that position would be untenable come morning when the Yankees renewed the fighting. At this point, Lee wasn't yet aware of the disaster that had occurred six miles to the south, down at Crampton's Gap, but this report from Hill and Longstreet regarding their sector was grim enough. Both men made it clear they thought their force must retreat from South Mountain. Robert E. Lee thought so, too. But for him, the decision to retreat meant much more than the withdrawal of Hill's and Longstreet's men from the mountain. In fact, for Lee... The decision meant that he must abandon his entire campaign and end the offensive strike north that had begun with so much promise just ten days earlier. That all must be given up, and instead there would be a retreat westward through Sharpsburg and across the Potomac River at the ford at Shepherdstown. It was a difficult decision for Lee, but one he had to make, because as long as Harper's Ferry still held out, The threat of McClellan's Federals cutting the Confederate Army in two and defeating it in detail was simply too great to ignore. Lee had gambled by splitting up his army, and now with Harper's Ferry still holding out and with the Federals about to burst through Turner's Gap, he had lost that gamble, and to save his divided army, he must withdraw back across the Potomac. On Sunday night, having given the necessary orders for the withdrawal of Hill's and Longstreet's troops from the mountain, Lee then arranged for the reunification of his army by sending word of his decision to retreat to his subordinates engaged in the siege of Harper's Ferry. At 8 p.m., Lee sent a message to Lafayette McClaws telling him, quote, The day has gone against us, and this army will go by Sharpsburg and cross the river. It is necessary for you to abandon your position tonight. Keep in mind that Lee, when he sent that message at 8 o'clock on Sunday night, didn't yet know that the Federal Sixth Corps had seized Crampton's Gap and was about to move into Pleasant Valley. And so Lee directed McClaws to withdraw from the heights above Harper's Ferry 
and, with his and R.H. Anderson's commands, retire northward up Pleasant Valley in order to unite with D.H. Hill and Longstreet, who were just then preparing to lead their men off the mountain. After sending those orders to McClaws, Lee sent a message to Stonewall Jackson, instructing him to abandon his position west of Harper's Ferry and move north to protect the ford across the Potomac at Shepherdstown. The first of Hill's and Longstreet's men began their retreat from South Mountain at 10 p.m. Sunday night. The last unit wouldn't begin their withdrawal until 4 a.m. Monday morning, and they wouldn't pass through Boonesboro until after daybreak. In the darkness, it was a sometimes chaotic and disorganized retreat, with many Confederate soldiers simply too worn out to continue marching, falling by the wayside to be gathered up on Monday by the pursuing Union columns. On Sunday night, McClellan was elated at the results of the day's actions. At 9.40 that night, he sent that happy telegram to Halleck. Then, sometime after midnight, he learned of Franklin's success at Crampton's Gap. September 14th was supposed to have been McClellan's day for an American Castiglione, his reward for exploiting the lost order and bursting through the South Mountain gaps to surprise the scattered rebel forces. If the day had instead turned into a long, bloody struggle for the mountain passes, it had still, ultimately, ended well for Little Mac. Turner's Gap was about to fall to the Federals, and to the south, Franklin had, even if belatedly, seized Crampton's Gap. But even as McClellan turned in that night for a few hours' rest, hopeful that on Monday his men would strike an even more damaging blow against the rebels, the fruits of his success on Sunday were slipping away, because in the end, the Battle of South Mountain may have been a Union victory, but it turned out that even in defeat, Robert E. Lee had gained the thing he needed most time. Time to complete the siege of Harper's Ferry, and time to reunite his divided army. Early on the morning of Monday, September 15th, the first Federal pickets advanced cautiously at Turner's Gap, only to discover that the rebels were gone. At Fox's Gap, the Yankees also found that the Confederates had slipped away in the night. News of this filtered back to McClellan, who quickly began organizing the pursuit. McClellan had already, the night before, instructed Franklin to renew his offensive in the morning by pushing into Pleasant Valley. So now, with a new flurry of orders, having thus made all the necessary arrangements for a pursuit, Little Mac sent another message to Washington. He told Halleck about Franklin's victory at Crampton's Gap and further praised the Army soldiers for their successes on Sunday. He also told Halleck that the rebels had, quote, disappeared during the night, end quote, and that he was setting off after them, quote, to press their retreat to the utmost, end quote. Descending the western slopes of South Mountain from Turner's and Fox's Gaps, the Union pursuit got off to a good start on Monday morning. There was a dust-up in the streets of Boonesboro as some Confederate cavalry, caught completely off guard, were surprised by rapidly advancing Federal horsemen. But even though the Union pursuit got off to a good start, by the break of dawn on the 15th, the situation was already drastically changed. 
Rather than falling all the way back to the Potomac, Lee had instead halted his retreating columns overnight. And even as McClellan was issuing orders for the pursuit on Monday morning, Lee was just then forming a new defensive line to the southwest of Boonesboro, along Antietam Creek, just outside Sharpsburg. This shift in Lee's strategy was forced upon him when he learned of the federal breakthrough at Crampton's Gap. Remember, when Lee first ordered the retreat from South Mountain about 8 o'clock on Sunday night and sent off instructions for McClaws to abandon his position above Harper's Ferry, Lee believed McClaws would have been able to march north unimpeded through Pleasant Valley. But when Lee learned of the Federal victory at Crampton's Gap, he knew this was no longer possible and that McClaws would now have difficulty in rejoining the Army. Lee realized that if he continued with D.H. Hill's and Longstreet's retreat across the Potomac, he would be abandoning McClaws and R.H. Anderson to their fate. And so, in order to help McClaws' command escape, Lee had halted his men overnight at Keatesville, a small hamlet about five miles west of the mountain. From that position, Longstreet and Hill would be on the flank of any Union force that moved down Pleasant Valley to attack McClaws. By daybreak on September 15th, Lee still hadn't heard anything from McClaws. He sent yet another message saying, quote, We have fallen back to this place to enable you to more readily join us. You are desired to withdraw immediately and join us here. The utmost dispatch is required. End quote. So early on Monday morning, Lee was still planning to retreat across the Potomac, but not without first seeing to the safety of McClaw's command. Daylight, however, revealed that Keatesville wouldn't do as far as being a spot to make a defensive stand. Just a few miles farther west, though, there was much better defensive terrain along Antietam Creek. And so Lee issued orders for Hill and Longstreet to march toward Sharpsburg and form up with their commands on the high ground that rose behind Antietam Creek, where they would wait for McClaws to join them. It should be pointed out that although Lee appreciated McClaws was caught in a tight spot, the Confederate commander didn't seem to fully appreciate McClaws' predicament. McClaws had been receiving Lee's messages, but there was simply no possible way for him to follow Lee's instructions and join up with Longstreet and D.H. Hill. The long and the short of it was that McClaws, with five or six thousand men, was boxed in in Pleasant Valley. He couldn't move forward after Franklin advanced from Crampton's Gap, and he couldn't move backward as long as the Federal garrison at Harper's Ferry was still holding out. Meanwhile, though, Lee was apparently under the impression that McClaws could have extracted his command with some difficulty and joined up with Hill and Longstreet, but this was simply not the case since McClaws was trapped, period. But then everything changed, because on Monday morning, Harper's Ferry finally surrendered to the Confederates. On Monday morning, as Franklin's men were advancing south down Pleasant Valley and coming into contact with McClaw's defensive line, the sound of cannon fire was still coming from the direction of Harper's Ferry. But then it stopped at about 8.30. After that, at 10 a.m., a resounding cheer went up from the rebels. 
a Union skirmisher climbed atop a stone wall and shouted, What the hell are you fellows cheering for? Because Harper's Ferry had done gone up, God damn you, came the reply. I thought that was it, said the Union soldier, before jumping back off the wall. As the hours then ticked by and a tense quiet prevailed between the opposing lines, it became increasingly obvious that there wouldn't be a battle that day in Pleasant Valley. With the fall of Harper's Ferry, Franklin saw no need for it. At 11 a.m., he had sent McClellan a message saying the enemy line in front of him was too strong for him to attack. The surrender of Harper's Ferry altered the nature of the campaign in a fundamental way by allowing Robert E. Lee to once again change his strategy. About a quarter after eight on Monday morning, after already deciding to fall back from Keatesville to Antietam Creek, Lee received a message from Stonewall Jackson, written the night before. This was the first report Lee had from Harper's Ferry in more than 24 hours, but it was welcome news, because Jackson said that the fall of that place was imminent. Jackson's news gave Lee new hope that perhaps the campaign could be salvaged after all. If he could put up a strong defensive line along the Antietam, and if D.H. Hill and Longstreet could then keep McClellan at bay long enough, then Stonewall would have the time he needed to wrap things up at Harper's Ferry. Stonewall could then march north and join Lee at Sharpsburg, Once again united, Lee was confident the Confederates would be more than a match for the Union Army, and Lee could even use the Hagerstown Pike, which ran north from Sharpsburg, to continue moving north, pulling McClellan after him. As Lee saw to the placement of Longstreet's and Hill's men in lines of battle on the west side of Antietam Creek, and as he called up all his guns to strengthen this new defensive line, the news only continued to get better for the re-energized Confederate commander, because about noon he received another note from Stonewall Jackson. It read, quote, Through God's blessing, Harper's Ferry and its garrison are to be surrendered. Stonewall also promised that his men would march and join Lee at Sharpsburg, and only A.P. Hill's division would be left behind to tend to the details of the surrender. Lee passed this news along to his lieutenants, who in turn passed it on to the men in their commands, who were just then forming into lines of battle behind Antietam Creek. The news, said Lee, quote, reanimated the courage of the troops, end quote. It's really quite amazing that just hours earlier, Robert E. Lee had been fully intending to abandon his campaign and give up on his offensive strike north, but circumstances, in the form of McClaw's predicament, had forced Lee to remain north of the Potomac. He couldn't retreat across the river without leaving McClaw's to his fate in Pleasant Valley, and so Lee had halted Longstreet and Hill and placed them in a defensive stance behind Antietam Creek where they could keep a careful eye on McClellan's approaching columns. However, when Lee learned of the impending fall of Harper's Ferry, his outlook brightened considerably. And now, with the capture of Harper's Ferry, the retreat was called off, and Lee set about attempting to salvage something of his campaign. Even as the Union Army inched its way closer to Sharpsburg, Stonewall Jackson's men, including McClaw's command from Pleasant Valley, were preparing to set off from Harper's Ferry to rejoin Lee. 
It was only at this moment that Robert E. Lee and his soldiers were able to fully appreciate what had been gained at South Mountain the previous day, time. The Confederates' determined stands at the mountain passes had held back the Federals long enough to give Stonewall Jackson the time he needed to complete the capture of Harper's Ferry. And although the Battle of South Mountain was a tactical defeat for Lee, it was at the same time a strategic victory, because when all was said and done, it was actually a successful delaying action, giving Lee the precious time he needed to reunite his divided army. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Antietam, 1862, The Civil War's Bloodiest Day by Norman S. Stevens. You guys probably noticed that we did something with the title of this episode that we've never done before. We titled it South Mountain, Part the Fourth, and Antietam, Part the First. We did that because we're making the transition from South Mountain to Antietam with this episode, and in a lot of ways, to understand how the armies ended up at Sharpsburg, you need to understand what happened at South Mountain. So anyway, this book recommendation is our first for the Battle of Antietam, and it's part of Osprey Publishing's campaign series. If you've been around a while, you'll remember we've recommended some of these books before, and like the others, uh, this particular one about Antietam is also a good introduction to the campaign and battle, uh, for those who aren't already familiar with it. So with Antietam, if you don't want to immediately jump into the deep end of the pool with your reading, this Osprey book will give you a nice overview of what all was going on. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap things up, Tracy and I just want to give a quick shout-out to the members of the Rocky Mountain Civil War Roundtable and thank them for inviting us to their meeting this past Thursday. That was a real treat. Yep. Yep. Um, And then we also want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Bob, Nathan, Gary, and Ray. And we've been trying to get members episode number 50 out to you guys, but have been having some technical difficulties. Uh, But hopefully those will be solved soon. Um, In the meantime, though, thanks for your patience. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we continue to set the stage for the Battle of Antietam and the bloodiest single day in American military history. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.